Father, we praise you that you are a very present help in time of trouble. And though the mountains quake and the earth tremor and the seas roar and foam, yet you are God and there is no other. And you, O oh Father, are in absolute and sovereign control over all things, and this is our hope. Whether it be a tremendous earthquake in Japan, or whether it be a personal tragedy or catastrophe in our own lives, oh Father, you reign, and you are supreme, and this is our hope, and this is our confidence that in our lives you cause all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We praise you, O Father. We were wrong when we thought that you were altogether like ourselves. You are not a man. And you are limitless in power and wisdom. And so we praise you, Father, for the invisible hand, your invisible hand, behind the scenes of every event in history, shaping and molding it according to the dictates of your will to accomplish your ends, that in the culmination of the ages, the Lord Jesus would be proclaimed as ultimate and glorious and sovereign and worthy of every knee bowing before and every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. We praise you, Father, for these things. This is our hope and our confidence. We ask you, Father, to put it, as it were, like a rock under our feet today for your glory and for our own inexpressible joy. For we pray it by the authority of Jesus' name. Amen. In the wee hours of the morning of March 11th, 2011, just nine days ago, a number of us were headed out to the men, father, son, uh, retreat, camp out, as it were. We all awoke that morning to find the world abuzz with the news of an earthquake off the coast of northern Japan that is just now being said to have measured, depending on the report you hear, maybe a 9.0 on the Richter scale. It may very well be the seventh largest earthquake ever measured since human measurements began. After rattling and shaking the streets and buildings on the mainland, it seemed for a few short hours that the country of Japan had dodged a bullet. And since the high-rises and most other buildings in that region were constructed under strict building codes that are designed to maintain their integrity under such conditions, relatively little damage and precious few lives were reported lost. But then again, there was very little time to assess the damage. Within minutes after the earthquake, as you know, the government of Japan began sounding the obligatory warnings about the possibility of a tsunami coming ashore on the eastern coast of the country. Little did anyone imagine how awesome and devastating that tsunami would be. And who will ever forget the televised images of entire towns, entire towns, being washed away in a matter of minutes right before our very eyes. The debris fields, the homes, the buildings, the boats, automobiles, airplanes, and bodies washed as many as three miles inland before the power of the water relented. This, unlike any televised disaster that I can remember in my lifetime, offered a picture, however inadequate, of what the Genesis flood must have been like. Horrific in judgment and power. To see it even on the internet was to be rendered breathless and awe-stricken. I mean, there are some events that you see on TV and you immediately begin speaking about it. There are other events that you see when they are real that leave you silent. Lack of words. We can only imagine the terror that must have gripped the hearts of those who were able to escape to ground high enough to watch their homes, their friends, their entire communities helplessly washed away. And yet this was not the end of the disaster. Reminiscent of the story of Job, who 
Having heard the devastating news of one disaster turns to find yet another messenger arriving to deliver news of further catastrophe. We watched in disbelief as the international news agencies began reporting on the damaged nuclear facility in Fukushima. Hit hard by both the earthquake and the tsunami. At first, there were only mild concerns as the government of Japan assured its people that everything was under control. And then one explosion after another over the next several days revealed the horrible reality that not one, but at least three and maybe four nuclear reactor buildings were failing and threatening to rain down radiation upon this already earthquake and tsunami-ravaged nation. In addition to all of this, freezing weather arrived. Ice and snow making, it, making the rescue and recovery efforts all but impossible. You know the story. And added to that personally, in our home, we had a son who was scheduled to go to Japan yesterday. And praise the Lord, that plan was changed. Beloved, let there be no mistake, the whole world is watching these events. And not only these events, but also those in Libya, and maybe still a little bit in Cairo, and the other uh, Middle East nations that are in conflict right now. And as we watch, many are asking, where is God? Where is God? I mean, if he's a God of love, why didn't he stop the earthquake? Why didn't he at least hold it back to like a six point something? Why didn't he cry out to the sea, peace, be still? Why didn't he protect the nuclear power plant and keep it from falling apart? Why did he allow all those people to die more than 5,000 last, 4,000 last count I heard and projecting over 10 now? Why, at the very least, did he not hold back the cold so that the rescue workers could do their jobs? Why? Why? When I read what's being said in the media this week, and when I hear religious leaders saying things like, don't blame God for this, he had nothing to do with these events, it makes me want to stand on the brakes of whatever else we're doing in my preaching ministry at this church and offer a biblical response to that. Beloved, we need to understand how to respond to these things biblically. And so this morning, rather than continue, continuing our study in 1 Corinthians on the spiritual gifts, I want to take a few minutes to offer some thoughts on the God of earthquakes and tsunamis. Who is this God? How should we understand him in light of the events that are facing our world today? If we get this wrong, then we leave ourselves in a rather hopeless and precarious state. If we get it right, beloved, we have a rock under our feet that cannot be shaken and upon which we can stand to proclaim the truth of the glorious excellencies of Jesus Christ, that God would use us to bring people to himself and that God would use us in various capacities in ministries of compassion and mercy. And so let's talk about these things. Number one, the Christian's first responses to calamity. What should be the Christian's first responses to calamity? I say responses because there should be more than one. Unless my intentions be mistaken this morning or misunderstood, it needs to be said that when calamity strikes, that's not the time to get all theological, at least not immediately. Rather, it's time to help and it's time to pray. God calls us to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn, Romans 12, 15. As we have opportunity, we are to do good to all men, Galatians 6, 10, to bring a couple of pertinent texts to our memory. I remember the day I was sitting in a restaurant with Charlie, just down Camp Bowie here, and we got a text from Dana that said that Peter Helms had just been in a terrible car accident and had been taken to the JPS Trauma Center. And at first, I didn't even understand the text. 
because it was impossible for my mind to, to, to get around that. And I remember looking up at Charlie and saying, uh, Peter Helms, something has just happened to Peter. We've got to go. And so we paid our bill, and I sped down to the hospital and uh, ran into that trauma center. When I went into the, went rushing down that hall, I saw Peter's father, Doug, who's a dear friend, not only of mine, but of this whole church. And when I got there, you know, you know what I didn't do? I didn't rattle off Romans 8.28. And we'll get to Romans 8.28. We've got to know that text. But you know the first thing you do? You just wrap your arms around him and you weep. And you do it for a long time. And you cry and, and you say very, very little. Job's friends would have done better if they had done that for a longer period of time. I didn't go into scriptures about God's sovereignty. I did exactly what all the other friends and family members did that day. We just wrapped our arms around him and Selah for a long time and wept. And then an hour or so later, we all kind of joined hands and got together and with Doug and Selah there, we prayed and we wept and we cried out to God to be merciful and gracious and we wept bitter tears on their behalf. And then as people began to disperse from the hospital, we found ways to get involved with alleviating the suffering. Some cooked meals, others gave money. Hope Helms set up a, a prayer and information kind of blog that more than 1,000 people joined. It's more than 1,000, right? How many people have joined that thing? Over 3,000 people joined, and, and still Hope is, is sending out information on Peter's progress. This is what believers do when calamity strikes. In times like this, our ministry doesn't begin with theological conversations. It begins with practical assistance in prayer and empathy and mercy. But you know, eventually, people want answers. And they want to know something about what God might be up to in the midst of calamity. And this is what I really want to focus on for the remainder of our time, because I think it's important that we have some biblical answers to offer people, not only about the current calamity in Japan, but for future, sometimes very personal tragedies that we will incur, in, encounter. And most of you already have. Number two, what do we need to know? What do we need to know about the Lord? How does our theology come to play in this? Number two is this. The Lord reigns over calamity, not Satan. This is the first theological truth you need to understand relative to calamity. The Lord reigns over calamity, not Satan. Beloved, there are so many people who are fearful. They live every day of their lives. This is especially true in the charismatic movement and Pentecostalism in particular. They are scared to death of the sovereignty of Satan. And they're afraid that Satan's going to come into their house at night and kill their child. And Satan's going to get in the highway and cause them to have a, heart, a, a car wreck or a heart attack or give them some disease. You just never know what Satan is going to do. Beloved, that is not a truth from the word of God. Satan has no sovereignty. There is no such thing as a sovereign Satan. Far too many people in circumstances like this rush to conclude that Satan caused the calamity. When there's an earthquake, a monster hurricane, a tsunami, it's immediately thought that Satan is the ultimate cause. But that's not how the word of God speaks of such events. In fact, the Bible, in the Bible, many earthquakes are attributed to God. And listen, none are attributed to Satan. Not a one. Here's just a sampling, 2 Samuel 22, 8. Then the earth shook and quaked. The foundations of heaven were trembling and were shaken because God was angry. 
Isaiah 13, 13, therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. Psalm 29, four through eight, and that's what we read this morning, right? Psalm 21 is a, 29 is a great text. I mean, just, just impose upon this text the term word of God for voice of the Lord. Same thing. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf. How does Lebanon skip like a calf when it shakes? And Syrian, like a young wild ox, the voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. And then think of Job chapter 9, verse 6. Job refers to God as him who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. And then there's there's tons of other texts, Isaiah 24, 18 through 20, 29, 16, Psalm 60, verse 2, Nahum 1, 5 and 6, Revelation, I counted 1, 2, 3, 4 major texts in Revelation where the Lord is causing earthquakes for various reasons. What's the point? The point is simply this. Nowhere in the Bible do we find Satan causing an earthquake or a tsunami. And when we do find Satan wreaking havoc upon the earth, it is only by the express permission of God. I mean, the whole point of Job 1 and 2, you read that recently? I mean, consider what was said there. Um, the, whole, the whole book of Job starts off not with Satan coming and asking permission, or Satan running around, running amok on the earth, and the Lord reigning him in. That's not how it started. In Job chapter 1, we read that the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Y'all know if, if I were Job, I'd be going, No, 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 no. Don't bring me into this. You guys just, you know, whatever, but leave me out. Have you considered my servant Job? The Lord initiated the whole thing. But he also restrained Satan. His permissions are his purposes. He accomplishes his purposes by his permissions. The Lord is in control. And that's the whole point of Job 1 and 2, is to demonstrate that Satan is only allowed to operate in such a way that accomplishes the ultimate purposes of God. He's on a leash. He can do nothing without God's permission. And that's not just an Old Testament principle. Think of New Testament. Think of Jesus talking to Simon Peter. And Jesus says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. And in the end, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. The point here is simply this. God is absolutely absolutely sovereign over calamity. Whether it be personal suffering or some kind of disaster that we've been witnessing on TV the past week, God is in control. God is in control. As Paul says, he is the God who does all things after the counsel of his own will. And beloved, we need to remember that God is completely sovereign he is completely sovereign in every circumstance. He is infinite in wisdom in every circumstance, and he is perfect in love. He's perfect in love. He has 10,000 purposes for this catastrophe. 10,000 purposes that, you know what? He's just not obliged to explain them to us. He's God. I mean, the definition of God is this, he does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the people of earth, and no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? He's God. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. 
and I will not leave the guilty unpunished. You know what it means to be God? It means to be absolutely free to do all of your holy will without restraint, without compulsion. I want you to turn with me in the Bible to Exodus chapter 4. I know I've been rattling off some scriptures here, but this one you've just got to see for yourself. And we're talking about not only, not only catastrophic events like what's happening in Japan right now, but even your own personal earthquakes. You get the news from the doctor. You get the call from the firemen or the police department. Something happens, and it's catastrophic in your life, in your family. You know what? we got families like that right now. We're praying for the Burmans right now. I mean, every day we pray for the Burmans, right? How should we view God in these things? This is an amazing text. Starting with verse 10, you know the story, Mount Sinai. This is before he... Um, before Moses is sent, this is actually Moses' commissioning here, to be sent to Egypt to rescue the Lord's people from bondage. And Moses is arguing with God. Okay, this is where we pick up, verse 10. This is Exodus chapter 4. And then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant. In other words, I never could talk very well, and nothing has changed since you and I started this conversation. You have spoken to your servant, uh, since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Now, okay, put on your seatbelt and strap on your crash helmet. Look at this. Verse 11, then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing, or blind, is it not I, the Lord? It's not Satan. Is it not I? Who causes one person to have diabetes? Who is behind every difficult circumstance in your life? Why is it that some children have a, a difficulty processing food and the doctors have no answers? Who calls those things? And God says of himself, is it not I, the Lord? And you say, God, why? I don't have to explain. But you must trust me. Everything I do is under my perfectly sovereign control. It is perfect in wisdom, absolute in sovereignty, and infinite in love. God knows what he's doing. Beloved, we need to be very careful not to try to defend or protect God by denying his sovereignty when calamity strikes. I think John Piper says it best when he said this, if you strip God of his sovereignty, that is his absolute control over the world in calamity, then you don't have a sovereign God to offer people on the other end of the calamity, which is their only hope for being able to survive the awful future that has been laid open to them. Or you could say it this way, you cannot counsel people to trust in God's sovereignty after the tragedy if you deny God's sovereignty over and in the midst of their tragedy. If you did it before, if you denied his sovereignty before their tragedy, then how can you offer them a sovereign God after their tragedy? Our greatest hope, beloved, people sometimes ask, I mean, they're offended by God's sovereignty. Beloved, God's sovereignty is not an offense. God's sovereignty is the very rock under our feet. You know what should happen every time there's an earthquake? Every time there's an earthquake, this is one of the things God is doing. You think that the only thing that is absolutely trustworthy in this world is the world. 
The only thing that will not fall apart is the earth you stand on. And when an earthquake happens and buildings begin to fall and the ground begins opening up and volcanoes come out and tsunamis start going, the Lord is saying, you cannot even put your trust in the earth. The only thing you have is my sovereign mercy, my sovereign grace, my sovereign rule over your life. Trust me. Trust me. Our greatest hope is in the fact that God is sovereign over all things. That Satan is not a loose cannon doing what he pleases and that the forces of this world are not random and out of control. To the contrary, the fact that God has good purposes for every moment of suffering he allows is our unshakable source of hope with every trembling of the earth beneath our feet even when that trembling is circumstantial. All of this then takes us back to Romans 8, 28. I mean, a lot of times what happens in pastoral ministry is if you're ministering to a thinking person who's experiencing tragedy, you go, you wrap your arms around them, you love them, you begin serving them, but at some point they're going to say, Pastor, can we just talk a little theology here? Can you help me understand this, and you know what? That's when these truths come in. In fact, let me just say this. The reason that I want to preach this message to you now, before this earth shakes, or before your next personal tsunami occurs, is because you got to have this rock under you before the event happens. But when that event happens... Oh, how precious are texts like Romans 8, 28. Can you just turn there for a minute? I know you know this text, but can we just be refreshed by it again this morning? Romans 8. Remember who Paul is writing to? He's writing to the saints who are in Rome, the suffering believers who are being persecuted. I mean, this whole text, I wish we had time to go through the whole thing, but just pick up in verse 28, and we know that God calls us all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn of many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he has glorified. You know why he's telling these people this? This is not a theology class. These people were being impaled on stakes. They were being covered with tar and set on fire. They were suffering. And Paul was saying, understand that your hope is not that you will miss or be spared from the suffering, but that God is sovereign over it. Keep reading, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, this is my favorite verse in the New Testament. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Yes, rather, who was raised and who was at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famines? Could we just add earthquakes, tsunamis, nakedness, peril, sword? Just as it is written, listen to these words, Remember, suffering believers being put to death. Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. Beloved, there are, there are Christians today who are living this and dying 
this. This is the rock under their feet. When our brothers and sisters in Sudan face another raid by hostile people in their region, and they come and burn their houses and kill their children and cut off their arms and set them on fire. This is not theoretical. This is not allegorical. We are considered like sheep to be slaughtered. By who? Well, us, by us Americans? We don't experience this. But every day the world exists, believers face this. I got a letter this week from Eric Mock, who's asking us to pray for our brothers in Tajikistan, the place where several of us went to minister a couple of years ago. New law coming out saying they're not allowed to evangelize their children, not allowed to offer any kind of children's ministry in the community, and not allowed to say anything that would be construed as an invitation for anyone to change their religious perspective under penalty of law. It's hard. But you ask those brothers, what sustains you? We don't live for this life. We're not here for very long. And someday we will look back on this and realize that these were momentary light afflictions that were laying in store for us an eternal weight of glory eternal weight of glory. And so all of this makes Romans 8.28 one of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture. One of the most precious truths to be found anywhere. And you know, I'll tell you what, when I stood beside the bed, and I think I've told you this a couple of times, when I stood beside the bed of Peter Helms for the first time, his parents had just gone in, and they let a couple family members come in and out, and then they called me in, and I stood there next to the bed, and there's their son. I mean, he had just been, he'd almost killed, and uh, still is, is fairly unresponsive, um, as, any, as any of us would conclude as, to, as we see him. And we're standing next to his bed, not knowing if he's going to live or die, I got my hands on the rail. I got Doug Helms, his dad, standing next to me. Selah Helms, his mom, standing next to him. And Selah leans over the rail and looks at me and says, isn't the sovereignty of God a precious truth? With a smile. And then Doug turns and looks at me and says, yes, brother, I don't understand how the world can handle circumstances like this because they don't have a sovereign God. You know how they were able to say that? You know how they're able to say that still? You know how Doug is able to stand before a group of men like he did here? We filled this whole side of the auditorium with men that Saturday morning and listing, what is it, nine ways that God has used this event to sanctify them and change them and cause them to love Christ more and expand their ministry. You know how he was able to do that? It was because he had this rock under their feet before the, the personal tsunami ever happened. Beloved, all I'm saying is, let God be God. Let God be God. And remember that he reigns over calamity, not Satan. Number three, what are God's purposes then? If, if God reigns over calamity, then what purposes might he have for allowing us to experience them? Well, first of all, we need to acknowledge that God has 10,000 purposes for what's happening in Japan and that he's not obliged to explain to us. But there are some things he's revealed relative to why he allows tragedy. And, and, and I'm only going to give you two. But we could go back and refer to Doug's list and come up with perhaps nine more. First of all, God is calling people everywhere to repent. Turn with me to um, Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. 
Because the disciples raised this issue. And this is very interesting because you have both kinds of calamity in this text. You have one that is human-caused and one that is naturally caused. Or at least we, don't, we aren't told why the tower fell. We just know that the tower fell. And so the assumption is either the earth shook or something happened that caused this tower to topple over and it was not caused by the evil of men. On the other hand, the first example that's given is the suffering at the hands of evil men. And this is, this is what we read. Chapter, uh, this is Luke 13, 1 through 5. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, now, now how would you expect Jesus to respond? Here's this tragedy. Pontius Pilate murdered these people and then took their blood and, and used it as a religious sacrifice. I mean, that's evil. I mean, they were no doubt coming to Jesus to pronounce that evil. Pray against that. Stand against that. Let's protest. Let's do something. That's not how Jesus responds. Do you suppose, verse 2, that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? Because they suffered? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's an amazing text. This is not the answer the disciples expected Jesus to give. Perhaps they expected him to say what the liberal media says, the liberal theologians who write in newspapers today say. Perhaps they expected him to tell them that God had no part in this tragedy. Rather, Jesus explains that those tragedies should be viewed by us as God's call to repent. Every calamity reminds us of what we deserve. Every calamity should remind us of what we deserve. The wages of sin is what? Death. Romans 6.23. We all deserve to die. We all deserve to, to face the ultimate and eternal calamity of hell. We live in a world that hates God and de denies the reality that we live every moment, quorum Deo, before the face of God and in the very presence of God, and that someday we are going to have to give an accounting of our lives to this God. And calamity, calamity sometimes just has the power to jolt us out of our apathy and insensitivity to our ultimate plight and brings us face to face with our mortality and causes us to think, am I ready? If I were in, the, if I were in front of that tower when it fell, if I were one of those Galileans who was murdered, if I was on the beach when that tsunami came, or in the power plant when the, the nuclear reactor failed, would I be ready to face God? The fact is, all of us are going to die, and then the only thing that will really matter to us is what my relationship with God was like this God whom I must now face. Every tragedy is a call to repentance. Every tragedy is a call to repent of our God-denying, Christ-belittling lifestyles and attitudes and fly to the cross as our only hope. The cross whose gospel is more stable than the very earth upon which we live. And so we need to see catastrophe as God's way of mingling judgment and mercy. It is judgment in the sense that all of us deserve what thousands of people last week faced in Japan. And it is mercy because God offer, God's offer is the eternal remedy against his judgment by his son, Jesus Christ. I remember when I was talking to the media after the tornado ripped through um, Union University and my son was on campus at the time. And uh, the only thing I could think to say was, it was a perfect picture of the gospel. 
It was the grace of God. No one died. It went right through the middle of campus and destroyed the campus right in the middle of the school year. Nobody died. And what can we conclude? My conclusion was, it was a perfect example of the gospel. It was the grace of God sheltering his people from the wrath of God. The grace of God sheltering his people from the wrath of God. Beloved, that's the gospel. I was talking to Maddie this week. We were going over our Awana stuff, and it asks, one of the questions was, um, talk to your parent about what it means to trust Jesus as your Savior. And we had the sweetest conversation. And I said, honey, what, do you, what does it mean to trust Jesus as your Savior? And uh, she said, um, to put your trust in Jesus. And I said, yeah, what are you trusting him for? To save you from your sin? And I thought, and maybe in an eight-year-old's mind, that's, that's right, but it's, but it's not adequate. And so we had a discussion of what salvation in Jesus Christ really is saving you from. God in Christ is saving us from God. God is rescuing us from his own holy wrath. And that's what we need to see in every tragedy. It's a mingling of judgment and mercy. In fact, no calamity in this world was ever greater than the death of Jesus Christ. Think of the ultimate calamity. The ultimate calamity was the death of Jesus Christ. And so on the one hand, there has never been a more severe act of judgment than when God crushed his son on the cross. On the other hand, however, there has never been a greater act of mercy than when God crushed his son on the cross. You see that? It was the greatest calamity, and it was the greatest act of mercy. And every calamity ever since is a mingling of judgment and mercy. Judgment and mercy. Paul understood this. 2 Corinthians 12, he said that God sent him it's an amazing scripture. Let's, let's not try to smooth over and allegorize this. This is, what, this is what Paul says. God sent him a messenger of Satan to torment him. For what purpose? To keep him clinging to the grace of God. You see, beloved, listen to this. God is not into sparing us pain. That is not God's ultimate purpose. He's not into sparing us pain. He is committed to doing whatever it takes to wake us up to our own helplessness and Christ's sufficiency for all that we need. I mean, so many people in the church live to get out from under their pain. Don't you understand that whatever it is that you're suffering, whether it's circumstantial or whether it's physical or, or relational or whatever it is, that God has brought that in your life. It's carefully measured for you to sanctify you, to make you more like Christ, or to call you to repentance, to trust in the only thing that's worthy of trust, the Lord Jesus Christ. God intends for the calamity in Japan to wake us up to the reality of judgment so that we will fly to the cross where we will find mercy enough to save and to sustain us for eternity. And so, purpose number one, God is calling people everywhere to repent. And purpose number two, and as I said, we could probably add more to this, but for time's sake, number two, God is calling us to show the world what he is like. Our response, whatever the response is, should show the world around us what God is like. How do we do that? First, by showing mercy and compassion to those who suffer. Christians of all people should be the first to sacrifice for the well-being of hurting people. Yes, we weep with those who weep, but then we get busy. Then we serve. Then we sacrifice, and we begin helping in very practical, tangible ways. What does that look like for Japan? I don't know. Maybe giving to a reputable organization? Maybe checking in on the missionaries that we know are over there and seeing if we can help them do the work of the ministry. By this, we show the world what God is like. That's what Jesus meant when he said things like, let your light 
So shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And as he said in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 44 and 45, he says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Maybe your suffering is coming at the hands of a coworker who's mistreating you. Bless, do not curse. Pray for them, do good to them. Find ways to bless and serve them. In this way, you show them what your Father in heaven is like. Second, first, God is calling us to show the world what he is like. The second, we show the world what God is like by telling them about what God did for us on the cross of Christ and what God did for them on the cross of Christ, how he did not spare his own son for their sakes so that their sin could be judged in a way that frees them to experience eternal life in God's presence without fear of judgment. All our sin for all our righteousness, not to him who works, but to him who believes, that's the gospel. And there is a whole city around us who desperately needs to hear it. And by the way, beloved, I think this is perhaps the reason why our counseling ministry to the community in this church is one of the most fruitful evangelistic tools we have and has produced perhaps more salvations by the grace of God than any other single ministry in this church. Because people from the world come, and they won't come to worship because they don't know God, but they come with their problems, and we point them to Christ. Beloved, we have no idea what eternal spiritual purposes God is accomplishing through the tragedies faced in Japan today, but we can be sure of this. God is completely sovereign. He is infinite in wisdom. He is perfect in love, and all of his purposes are holy, righteous, and good to the praise of his glory. So how should this affect our lives practically, number one? Let this truth become the rock under your feet before the next calamity comes along. Let me just summarize it this way. Theology matters. Theology matters. If your theology is flimsy and soft, and if you pieced it together from a bunch of your favorite teachers, and a big heavy weight falls on that, it's going to break out from under your feet. You gotta have a strong theology. You have to know your God. Specifically, let me encourage you to study the attributes of God. Pick up A.W. Pink's book. It's a small book on the attributes of God. Or, or pick up Carnock's book and spend the next three years reading it on the existence and attributes of God. Or Tozer's book, kind of medium-sized, about two, 250 pages on the attributes of God. Find something. Just study it from the scriptures. Learn who God is. That's the most important thing. Secondly, let, this, let these truths drive us to worship God for who he is rather than what we prefer him to be. I mean, so many Christians in this world prefer God to be only love and mercy and goodness and kindness and compassion and would deny God his judgment and his wrath. Don't do that. See, let it drive us to pray for the nations. Beloved, we should be praying for Japan. If you know anything about world missions, you know Japan is one of the strongholds that seems impossible to break into. Yes, we've got dear friends. Uh, the brother who married my wife and I, him and his wife are in southern Japan, way down south in Kagoshima, and they did the unthinkable they started a church. Everybody said it couldn't be done, and it was hard, and it's small. But the influence of Christianity there is very, very small. And the reason is because of the Buddhism and the Shintoism. Shintoism, they believe in 
for their lives today and Buddhism they believe in for the life to come. And the whole system is set up so that if you betray your faith, you betray your ancestors who are depending on you in this life to sustain them in the afterlife. It is really hard to break into that, especially in a culture where loyalty and honor are paramount. That's why you don't see looting in Japan. Their whole culture is built on this respect and honor, and especially toward the older and the dead. And you know what? How do you break into that? How do you break into that? Could it be that God is attempting by his sovereign mercy to shatter that false belief system? Pray for the nations. Pray for Japan. Pray for the faithful saints who were there seeking to bring the gospel to bear on people's lives. And D, let it motivate us toward practical acts of self, uh, sacrificial mercy and compassion on those we know are suffering personal earthquakes and tsunamis every day. Every day. Beloved, this is a glorious truth. I know it's a heavy truth. I know we're weighing into the deep end this morning, all of us. But you know what? It's good for us. From time to time, we need to tackle these issues. We need to see what the Word of God says. We need to not rebel against it. We need to submit to it for the glory of God and for our own joy. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we give you praise and thanksgiving because you are God and there is no other. We praise you, Father, and thank you that we can trust you even when the earth trembles beneath our feet and it seems like the boundaries of the sea have been broken. Oh, Father, you are God and no calamity can strike us other than that which comes through your sovereign, merciful, wise, hands. And so we give you praise. And we say with Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Most of all, Father, may it cause us to respond to you in obedient worship, submissive worship, glorious, soul-stirring, heart-igniting worship that we serve and have the privilege to serve such a God. And so we give you praise and glory and honor in the name of our Savior Jesus.